Section 42 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Malls Byron, Chicago. Chapter 12, The Catholic South, by the Reverend W. E. Collins. Part 3. But the great process against Carnesecchi had an importance apart from the man himself. As it has been said, he is but the secondary figure in it, and his real heroes are the illustrious dead. Carnesecchi was the disciple of Valdes, the friend of Flaminio and Pole. He had been on terms of intimacy with that body of loyal sons and daughters of the church of whom mention has been made already, who had striven nobly, through evil report and good report, for its reformation, and who had been hopelessly beaten at the Council of Trent. They had been watched and suspected by the Inquisition ever since. Some indeed had actually suffered at its hands. Most of them were dead before 1566, but the pursuit of heresy ceased not at the grave and those who, during their lives, were revered as the hope of the church, were impugned as suspects or as actual heretics in the famous process of Carnesecchi. This Catholic minority, for such it really was, grew out of the body of friends who centered round Contarini in Venice. It was reinforced by many who had sat at the feet of Valdes or had traveled in the north. The aim of this party was the reform of the whole ecclesiastical system. Its doctrinal rallying point was justification by faith in Christ Jesus, and not by a man's own works. So far, they were at one with Luther. But, realizing as they did, that this had ever been the doctrine of the church, they were not impelled, as he was, to deny the reality of free will, to depreciate the fruits of faith, or to eviscerate faith itself by reducing it to an act of intellectual assent and divorcing it from Christian love, which issues in action. Quote, we obtain this blessing of complete and perpetual salvation, wrote Sadoleto to the citizens of Geneva, by faith alone in God and in Jesus Christ. When I say faith alone, I do not mean, as those inventors of novelties do, a mere credulity and confidence in God, to the exclusion of love and other Christian virtues, this is indeed necessary and forms the first access which we have to God, but it is not enough, for we must also bring a mind full of piety towards Almighty God, and desirous of performing whatever is agreeable to Him, by the power of the Holy Spirit." End quote. Moreover, loyalty to the Church was with them a fundamental principle. Many, no doubt, were in frequent and friendly correspondence with the Reformers, but it must be borne in mind that the line of division between the Protestant bodies and the Church was very gradually determined, and that men long hoped for a speedy settlement of the existing divisions. Here again, Sadoleto's letter illustrates their position. He recognizes the existing evils in the Church and will even grant that there are serious doctrinal errors, but even so, the evils of separation are greater, and to depart from the unity of the body of Christ is to court destruction. Quote, Let us inquire and see which of the two is more conducive to our advantage, which is better in itself, 
and better fitted to obtain the favor of Almighty God, whether to accord with the whole church and faithfully observe her decrees and laws and sacraments, or to adhere to men seeking dissension and novelty. This, dearest brethren, is the place where the road divides. One way leads to life, the other to everlasting death. End quote. The letter is worthy of its occasion, so is the answer which it called forth from Calvin. The failure of the Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia, the death of Clement VII, and the succession of Carafa had dashed the reformers' hopes, but they did not lose heart. Contarini was still their leader, and it was probably on this account that he was sent as papal legate to the colloquy of Ratisbon in 1541, whence he kept up a correspondence with Paul, Morone, and Foscarari, afterwards Bishop of Modena. For a time all went well, and an agreement was come to, not indeed without great difficulty, upon the point of justification. But neither side really trusted the other, and Contarini himself was jealously suspected by many members of the Curia. Consequently, the effort, the last real effort to conciliate the reformers, came to nothing. Contarini returned in deep sadness to Italy, and died the year after at Bologna. His place as leader of the movement was taken by Reginald Pole, whose house at Viterbo, whither he was sent as papal governor in 1541, became their headquarters. Here met together for prayer and study Gilberti and Soranzo, the former bishop of Verona, the latter before long of Bergamo, Flaminio, Luigi Priuli, Donato Rullo, Lodovico Beccatello, and others. It was probably Pole's influence which kept Flaminio from seceding to the Lutherans. Not less was his influence with Vittoria Colonna, to whom he was greatly devoted, and who found in him a wise spiritual guide when many others seemed to have gone astray. It was he who advised her to believe that we are justified by faith only, and to act as though we were to be justified by our works. Little by little their hopes faded. At the Council of Trent, indeed, Pole was one of the legates, and there were not a few bishops and theologians who were with him in the matter of justification. But it soon became clear that the Council and Curia were against him, and Pole left Trent before the decree on the subject was actually made. He relapsed into silence, waiting, and advising his friends to wait for a more convenient season. It seemed as if this had actually come when, in November 1549, Paul III died. The English cardinal was beloved by some, respected by all. In the conclave which followed, it long appeared likely that he would be chosen, and that the betting outside, based upon information from within, was much in his favor. But his views on justification robbed him of the tiara. His rival Del Monte was chosen, who took the name of Julius III, and Pole once more went into retirement until his mission to England in 1554. The accession of his enemy Carafa as Paul IV was a still greater blow. Sadoleto's commentary on the Romans and Contarini's book on justification were declared suspect. 
Pole ceased to be legate and was for a time disgraced. Morone was actually imprisoned for heresy and remained in prison until the death of the Pope in 1559. The Inquisition resumed its activity all over Italy. Although the total extinction of heresy was still long delayed, the end was only a question of time. For the springs were dried up, and no new ones burst forth. 2. Spain Although one of the noblest leaders of the Italian reform was a Spaniard, the movement never obtained such a hold upon Spain as upon Italy, in part because measures of repression were more promptly and more thoroughly applied, in part, perhaps, because many of the practical abuses had already been abated or removed, while the doctrinal abuses which called forth the protest had not yet prevailed in Spain so largely as elsewhere. Many of the best-known Spanish reformers lived and died in Flanders or in some foreign land, and in Spain itself the movement appears to have had little vitality excepting in and about two centers, Valladolid and Seville. Two autodefe at Valladolid and two at Seville, of the thorough kind instituted by the Spanish Inquisition, sufficed to break up the reformed in those centers. Many fugitives escaped and found refuge in Germany, England, or the Low Countries, and the few who remained were gradually swept away by the same drastic methods of the Inquisition. A reform of the Spanish clergy, regular and secular, had taken place before Luther arose. It had begun, so far as the regulars were concerned, nearly a century before. For example, the Cistercians had been reformed by Fray Martino de Vargas in the time of Pope Eugenius IV, and afterwards, Cardinal Mendoza had worked in the same direction. But the chief agent in it was Fray Jimenez de Cisneros of the Order of St. Francis, to be better known as Cardinal Jimenez. At the request of Ferdinand and Isabella, he drew up a report on the state of all the monasteries in Spain. Thereupon, a bull was sought by Alexander VI in 1494, by which Cisneros was empowered to visit and set in order all the regulars of Spain, and he inaugurated the most drastic reformation, perhaps, that religious houses ever sustained. His action was in general submitted to, but his own order, which was the worst of all, resisted strenuously and obtained a bull of prohibition against him. On further information, the Pope annulled this and the work went on. The monasteries were disciplined, their, quote, privileges, end quote, were burned, and their rents and heritages taken away and given to parishes, hospitals, etc., a large number of monks who were scandalous evil livers and who seemed irreformable were deported to Morocco and the work was complete. With the seculars, Cisneros was less successful. But by degrees, the regulars reacted healthfully upon them. Bishops and provincial synods took them in hand and the early inquisitors, especially Adrian of Utrecht, did much to put away abuses amongst them. 
Without doubt, therefore, the moral state of the Spanish clergy in the 16th century, especially that of the monks and friars, was immeasurably superior to that of the clergy in any other part of Western Christendom. Moreover, the purging of the Spanish clergy had been accompanied, or followed, by a revival of learning. Jimenez was a scholar and a munificent patron of scholarship, and under his fostering care the University of Alcala had become famous throughout Europe as a center of theological and humane learning. The Cretan, Demetrios Ducas, taught Greek, Alfonso de Zamora, Pablo Coronel, and Alfonso de Alaca were expert Hebraists, and among other scholars, there were the two Vergaras, Lorenzo Balbo and Alfonso de Nebria. The greatest monument of the liberality and enterprise of Jimenez was the famous Complutensian polyglot, which was in preparation at the very time when Erasmus was working at the first edition of his Greek Testament, though it did not begin to appear till 1520. These facts have no little bearing upon the way in which the writings of Erasmus were received in Spain. To some he was a literary colleague whom they, with all the world, were proud to honor. To others he was a rival whose work was to be depreciated whenever possible. Nor was it difficult to do this, for his satirical writings against clerical abuses really did not apply to Spain. Elsewhere, all good men were agreed in combating the evils against which they wrote. In Spain, the earnestness of his crusade was easily overlooked by those who had not lived abroad. On the other hand, nowhere was there so keen a scent for heresy. His liberal thought and his ridicule of religious customs which, however liable to abuse, were in themselves capable of justification, seemed most dangerous to the orthodox Spanish mind, and only the more large-hearted were able to discern the genuine depth of his piety. Nowhere, therefore, did Erasmus's writings rouse such feelings as in Spain. Diego Lopez de Stuniga and Sancho Carranza de Miranda invade against him, the former repeatedly, accusing him of bad scholarship, of heresy, of impiety, calling him not only a Lutheran, but the standard-bearer and leader of the Lutherans. Erasmus replied, publicly and privately, with comparative moderation, and by degrees the controversy died away. Meanwhile, he had many personal friends in Spain, through whose influence some of his writings were translated into Spanish, the first being the Enchiridion, which appeared in 1526 or 1527 with a dedication to Manrique the Inquisitor and bearing his imprimatur. Some spoke against it, including Ignatius Loyola, who says that when he read it, in Latin, it relaxed his fervor and made his devotion grow cold. Nevertheless, it had a wide popularity. This brought its author into still greater prominence, and a contemporary writer says that his name was better known in Spain than in Rotterdam. Gradually, two hostile camps were formed, of Erasmistas and anti-Erasmistas. In 1526, the archdeacon Alfonso Fernandez, the translator of the Enchiridion, wrote to Coronel that certain friars were preaching against its author and suggesting that they should be censured. 
On the other hand, friars demanded that certain theses selected from Erasmus's writings should be condemned. In the ecclesiastical juntas which had met at Valladolid in Lent, 1527, a formal inquiry was begun before Manrique and a body of theologians, but no agreement was reached, and Manrique dissolved the inquiry, leaving things as they were. Alonso Fonseca, Archbishop of Toledo, also took the part of Erasmus, and by the influence of Gattinara and other friends at the court of Charles V, a bull was obtained from Clement VII, imposing silence upon all who spoke or wrote against his writings, which, quote, are contrary to those of Luther, end quote. Thus the Erasmistas has won a complete victory, and for a time had things all their own way. But after the death of Fonseca in 1534, the tide turned. Juan de Vergara and his brother were cited before the Inquisition, accused, says Enzinas, of no crime but favoring Erasmus and his writings, and although they were ultimately acquitted, it was only after years of detention. Fray Alonso de Virues was condemned for depreciating the monastic state and was immured in a convent, but the charges were so preposterous that Charles V, whose chaplain he was, came to his rescue, and the sentence was annulled by the Pope. Matteo Pascual, professor of theology at Alcala, was less fortunate. He had expressed a doubt as to purgatory in a public discussion, was imprisoned, and his goods were confiscated. Another who fell under suspicion was the great scholar Pedro de Lerma, who had lived at Paris for over fifty years, had been the deacon of the faculty of theology there, and had returned to Spain as the abbot of Compludo. In 1537, he was called upon to abjure 11 Erasmian propositions, one of which seems to have been justification by faith. He forthwith returned to Paris at the age of over 70 years, accompanied by his nephew Francisco de Encinas, in whose arms he died not long after. Erasmianism gradually died out in Spain. Elsewhere, it either died out or took a line of its own, as in the case of Juan de Valdez, or became merged in Protestantism. Pedro de Lerma was on the borderline. His nephews crossed it. Francisco de Encinas, or Dryander as his name was frequently rendered, was the younger brother of that Jaime who burnt in Rome in 1547. They were sons of rich and noble parents at Burgos, and were educated at Louvain and Paris. On the death of de Lerma, Francisco became a matriculated student of Wittenberg University, where there were about, at that time, four other Spanish students, one of whom, Matteo Adriano, was professor of Hebrew and medicine. The young man lived in the house of Melancton, becoming so dear to him that he was often spoken of as Melancton's soul. And it was by his advice that Encinas translated the New Testament into excellent Spanish. Having finished it, he went to the Low Countries, and from this point we are able to follow his steps by means of his narrative. The edicts of Charles V against heresy were being put into force, but he felt safe 
as he had many friends. He presented his vision to the theological faculty of Louvain for their imprimatur, but they replied that they had no power to give him this and could not judge of its accuracy. So he himself published it at Antwerp with a dedication to the emperor in which he defended the translating of the scriptures against which he said he knew no law and placed his own version under Charles's protection. On November 23, 1543, he arrived at Brussels to present it in person and was introduced to the emperor's presence by the Bishop of Jaén. After a conversation of which Encinas has left a rather partial account, the emperor promised to accept the dedication, provided that the version was satisfactory, and it was submitted to his confessor, Fray Pedro de Soto. Soto was disposed to be friendly, but took the precaution of making inquiries. The following day, he sent for the young man, set before him the dangers of the unguarded reading of the scriptures, as demonstrated by Alfonso de Castro in his De Heresibus, and added that Encinas had broken the law by publishing an unlicensed work. Also, that he was still more to blame for consorting with heretics at Wittenberg and for publishing a heretical book based upon Luther's De Servo Arbitrio. Encinas answered, reasonably enough, that there was no law in Flanders against translating the Bible, and that if it was wrong to consort with the German doctors, then the emperor himself and many more were to blame. As to the book, he denied roundly that he had ever published anything but the New Testament, a denial which it is very hard to accept. Ultimately, he was committed to prison in Brussels for his civil offense, and thus was saved, evidently by Soto's desire, from the tender mercies of the Spanish Inquisition. There he remained in no easy confinement until February 1st, 1545, when, by the negligence, or more probably connivance, of his jailers, he escaped and made his way to Wittenberg, and thence to Strasbourg, Basel, and elsewhere. In disgust at the discords amongst Protestants, he seriously thought of going to Constantinople to preach the gospel there, but instead of doing so, he married a wife, came to England on Cranmer's invitation, and was made professor of Greek at Cambridge. There he remained for about two years, but in 1549 he returned to the continent to arrange for the printing of his Spanish version of the classics, and died at Augsburg on December 30, 1550. Jaime de Encinas had remained at Paris for some time after his brother's departure and whilst there had imbued another Spaniard, Juan Diaz, with his own views. Born at Cuenza, the city of the brothers Valdez, Diaz had studied for 13 years at Paris, becoming proficient in theology and in Hebrew. About 1545, he went to Geneva and spent some months in Calvin's society. Thence he passed to Strasbourg with the brothers Luis and Claude de Sernarcleus, the latter of whom, with the help of Encinas, afterwards wrote his life. At Strasbourg, the tenets of Calvin were held in some suspicion, and before being admitted to communion, Diaz was called upon to show his orthodoxy by making a public profession of faith. At the end of the year, the city sent Busser, as its deputy, 
to the second colloquy of Ratisbon, summoned by Charles V, and by his desire Diaz was sent with him, meanwhile acting also as agent for Cardinal du Bellay, the protector of the Huguenots of France. At Ratisbon in 1546, he had a series of discussions with the Dominican Fray Pedro de Malvenda, whom he had known at Paris, but his accounts of these is very one-sided, and all that is certain is that neither converted the other. From Ratisbon, Diaz went to Neuburg on the Danube. Meanwhile, news of his doing reached his brother Alfonso, who was a lawyer at Pavia. He at once hastened to him in the hope of being able to persuade him to return to the church, or at least to abandon the society of the Germans. On the advice of Ochino, who was then at Augsburg, Juan refused to do either. Alfonso, maddened with fanaticism and the shame of having a heretic in the family, thereupon compassed his death, and with an accomplice cruelly assassinated him at Feldkirchen on March 27, 1546. The murderers were captured and brought to trial at Innsbruck, but as they were in minor orders, Soto and others caused the case to be cited to Rome, where the murderers escaped scot-free. Not unnaturally, the Protestants regarded Diaz as a martyr, and attributed his death to the direct orders of the ecclesiastical authorities. But though they connived at the escape of the murderers, the act itself was certainly one of private vengeance. Another Spaniard who adopted the reformed views about this time was Francisco de San Roman, a rich merchant from Burgos. In 1540, going from Antwerp to Bremen on business, he went by chance into a Lutheran church where Jacob Speng, formerly prior of the Austin canons at Antwerp, was preaching. Although he knew no German, he was attracted by the preacher, stayed at his house, and adopted his views. He at once began to preach and to write in Spanish with the eagerness of fanaticism and the self-confidence of ignorance. Returning to Flanders, he was arrested and examined. His books were burnt, and he himself was imprisoned. Being released after six months, he went to Louvain, where he met Encinas, who rebuked him for risking his life uselessly by shrieking like a madman in the marketplaces, and for impiously taking upon himself to preach without a call from God, and without the requisite gifts or knowledge. The rebuke made no impression. In 1541 he went to Ratisbon and presented himself before Charles, who heard him patiently again and again, but at length ordered his detention as a heretic. He was taken to Spain, handed over to the Inquisition, and burned in an auto de fe at Valladolid in 1542. His fidelity won him commendation where his rashness and ignorance had failed. And after his death, Speng wrote to Encinas with the tenderest reverence and love for the man whom they had little esteemed while he lived. Passing over Pedro Nunez Vela of Avila, of whom little is known save that in 1548 and again in 1570 he is spoken of as a professor of Greek at Lausanne, we turn to reform movements within Spain itself. 
Precautions had been taken from 1521 onwards to prevent the diffusion of Lutheran books in Spain. Attempts were not infrequently made to introduce them by sea. In 1524, two casks full were discovered and burnt at Santander, and in the following year, Venetian galleys were attempting to land them on the southeastern shore. But it was neither in Biscay nor in Granada that the storm burst, nor was it caused by the importation of Lutheran books. It began in Seville and in Valladolid, then the capital of Spain, and amongst its leaders, even if they were not its founders, were three chaplains of the emperor, Dr. Agustin Cazzala, Dr. Constantino Ponce de la Fuente, and Fray Bartolomé Carranza, Archbishop of Toledo and Primate of Spain. To begin with Seville, a noble gentleman there, Rodrigo de Valer, suddenly turned from a worldly life to one of devotion, studying the Bible till he knew it almost by heart. He also began to inveigh against the corruptions of the church, preaching in the streets and squares, and even on the cathedral steps, saying that he was sent by Christ to correct that evil and adulterous generation. He was more than once cited before the Inquisition, but treated with great leniency, partially because he was thought to be insane, partially because he was a Cristiano Viejo without admixture of Jewish or Moorish blood. At length, he was condemned to wear a San Benito and undergo perpetual imprisonment in a convent. There he died about 1550. His life had not been fruitless. He had made many converts, among them the canon Juan Gil of Olvera in Aragon. Gil, or Egidio, as he was also called, had studied with distinction at Alcala and was a master of theology of Siguenza. About 1537, he obtained the magistral canonry of Seville, which imposed on him the duty of preaching. At first, his preaching had little success, but he gained new views of truth by his intercourse with Valer, and before long he became famous as a preacher. But he owed even more to his brother canon, Constantino Ponce de la Fuente, than to Valer. For he it was who first taught him, in set terms, the doctrine of justification by faith. Constantino, a native of San Clemente near Cuenza, had studied at Alcala with Gil and a certain Dr. Vargas. He was a man of great learning, skilled in Greek and Hebrew, who had probably learnt the doctrine of justification from books. In 1533, he had been made a canon of Seville, and although he was not so popular there as Gil, elsewhere his fame was far greater. The three friends now began to work together. Gil being the most active. He and Constantino preached diligently. Vargas expounded the Gospel of St. Matthew and the Psalms, and by degrees they gathered a body of adherents to whom they ministered in secret. For a long while, nothing was suspected. In fact, Constantino was chosen by the emperor to accompany him as his preacher and confessor, and was out of Spain with him from 1548 to 1551, much revered and honored. He subsequently came to England with Philip II and only returned to Seville late in 1555. During this period, he produced a series of books which were then much valued, but were ultimately regarded as heretical. Meanwhile, the others had been less fortunate. 
Gil, indeed, had been nominated by the emperor for a bishopric in 1550, but soon afterwards he and Vargas were cited before the Inquisition. Vargas fell ill and died, but Gil was proceeded against vigorously, the charges including the points of justification, works, purgatory, invocation of saints, and actual iconoclasm in the cathedral. In prison, he wrote an apology on justification which was held to make his case worse. But ultimately, on Sunday, August 21st, 1552, he made a public recantation in the cathedral, extorted, his friends afterwards said, by fraud. He was sentenced to a year's imprisonment in the castle of Triana near Seville, the headquarters of the Inquisition, with permission to come to the cathedral fifteen times. He was to fast strictly every Friday, to make his confession monthly, communicating or not, as his confessor directed, not to leave Spain, not to say mass for a year, or to exercise other functions for ten years. Gil, however, did not modify his views. In 1555, he visited the Reformed at Valladolid, and died a few days after his return, early in 1556. The chapter of Seville had stood by their colleague nobly, although, or perhaps because, their archbishop, the stern Fernando de Valdez, was at the head of the Inquisition. They paid Gil a considerable salary whilst he was in prison, and set upon his grave in the cathedral a fine monument. Moreover, in spite of great opposition, they elected Constantino, magistral canon, in his place. He at once took up his friend's work, and besides preaching, began a course of Bible lectures at a school in the city. By degrees, he also was suspected by the Inquisition, which frequently summoned him to explain his conduct. When his friends asked him the reason of his frequent visits to Triana, he replied, They wish to burn me, but as yet they find me too green. As time went on, he began to lose heart and at length, in order to disarm suspicion, resolved to join the newly arrived Jesuits. But they had been warned, and refused to receive one who would otherwise have been acceptable enough as a recruit. At length, the Inquisition obtained proof of what they had doubtless long suspected. There existed in Seville a sect of considerable size, whose members met together secretly and had their own organization and services. They had grown up about Gil and Constantino, had increased rapidly, and had obtained copies of the New Testament from abroad through the activity of one of their members. The detection of this society led to the accidental discovery of a large collection of Constantino's writings in which he had spoken his full mind. He was at once arrested. After a vain denial, he avowed that the books were his, and that they represented his convictions. He was imprisoned in the dungeons of Triana and died two years afterwards of disease and privation. Meanwhile, the search went on vigorously, and by degrees all was discovered. From the Sancte Inquisitiones Artes Aliquot Detecte, published under an assumed name in 1567 by a former member of the sect, it appears that more than 800 people were proceeded against altogether. They had two centers, the house of Isabel de Baena, 
quote, the temple of the new light, end quote. The place, quote, where the faithful assembled to hear the word of God, end quote, and the Hieronymite Monastery of San Isidro. Led by their prior, Garci Arias, known as Maestro Blanco from his white hair, the friars of San Isidro embraced the new views almost to a man, amongst them being the learned Cristobal de Ariano, Antonio del Coro, and Cipriano de Valera. They abolished fasts and mortifications and substituted readings from the scriptures for the canonical hours. Amongst the lay members of the sect were Juan Ponce de Leon, second son of the Count de Ballen, Juan González, and the physician Cristobal de Losada, and Fernando de San Juan, rector of the Colegio de la Doctrina. Above all, there was Julian Hernández, known to the rest as Julianillo, since he was of very small stature and, quote, no more than skin and bone, end quote. But he was a man of fearless courage, and by his means they were able to procure religious books in Spanish, including the New Testament. Juan Pérez, the former rector of the Colegio de la Doctrina, had fled from Spain when Gil was arrested. In his exile, he had prepared a version of the New Testament, which was published at Venice in 1556. By the courage and resourcefulness of Julianillo, two great tons filled with copies were safely smuggled into Seville, despite the watchfulness of the Inquisition. Little by little, the Inquisition got through its work, drawing its net closer and closer about the chief offenders and allowing lesser persons to go free on doing penance. At an auto de fe, celebrated in the Plaza de San Francisco on September 24, 1559, 14 persons were burnt to death for heresy, including four friars and three women. A large number were sentenced to lesser penalties and the house of Isabel de Baena, in which they met, was razed to the ground, a, quote, pillar of infamy, end quote, being erected on the site. On December 22nd, 1560, a second auto was celebrated at the same place where eight women, one being a nun, and two men, one of whom was Julianillo, were burnt. Gil, Constantino, and Perez were burned in effigy, and a number of friars and others were visited with lesser penalties. Some contrived to escape and fled from Spain, and a few single cases of heresy were dealt with in later years. Thus ended the history of the reform in Seville. End of section 42